welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God again. We're going to probably look uh, for most of this show on First Corinthians, or at least Corinthians, and Corinth, and what was going on at that particular time in history. Uh, but a uh, few things going on in the news today and uh, this week announcements is uh, Burning Bush Festival, which is coming up at the end of August here, August 31 and 1st of September. Uh, you can go to burningbushfestival.org, I guess it is. I think, uh, think for a second, yeah, .org. And uh, also the Burning Bush Festival on Facebook and you can get more information and, of course, if you're in the Living Network, you can get lots of information. And you can get on the Living Network by going to preparingyou.com and, uh, or hisholychurch.org and signing up on the network and finding out more about the Living Network and uh, what it has to do with Corinth. Uh, because that's a big question as to how did the early church organize itself? What was it doing what was the activities, you know, we always hear about church activities today. What were the activities of the church at the time of Christ and the early church uh, in Corinth and Rome and all these different places? What was going on? And what are the epistles telling us? They talk about different clues. You know, we have uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and most theologians who study this sort of thing are pretty sure there were other letters besides first and second and first and second were probably not the first and second uh, letters they might be the second and third or second and fourth and uh, there were other letters that were written that are not considered actually written by Paul but maybe uh, delegated by Paul to be written by somebody else but what what does it tell us in first and second corinthians what what are they really talking about who are they talking to what's the problems and uh, what does it have to do with the early church and so those are some of the questions we're going to look at uh history is really pretty much the same today as it is yesterday because we're the same today as we were yesterday the Human nature has not changed that much over the centuries. Uh, I got an email this morning for somebody soliciting aid for uh, the, uh, I guess it's the Demo uh, Republican Party, and they were talking about the Democratic Party, how much money they had received and and uh, uh, how much money they were going to need in order to defeat the Democrats. And uh, they're talking about millions and millions of dollars. And uh, they they wanted to make sure that uh, socialism did not destroy uh, Trump's legacy in the email. And, you know, it's, it's just one of these forum emails. I don't even know how I got on that list. But uh, I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, like, the problem goes way deeper goes way deeper in society. I mean, half of the children being graduated from high school think socialism is good. Yet most of those kids who think socialism is good can't define socialism. If you ask them to define socialism, 
they're going to give you a definition that is not in the dictionary. <laughs> it's not, it's simply not that they don't know what it is, but they think it's good. Uh, they don't know the difference between a republic and a democracy. They, they have very little understanding of what might be in the Constitution. They probably haven't read the Constitution. And we just heard a news story before the show began where people are talking about uh, college professors and inclusiveness and, and uh, you know, prejudice and power elites and all this kind of stuff that, uh, affecting our society. And the truth is that many of these same kinds of comments and discussions were going on in Corinth and in Rome and in you know, you can go back 150 years before Christ and you'll see people debating the wisdom of socialism because uh, Rome was becoming more and more socialist. It didn't just happen overnight. You know, 150 AD, there isn't even an emperor. There is no emperor of Rome. It's still, a, theoretically, it's a republic, although it was moving towards becoming an indirect democracy for probably 200, maybe even 300 years. And these changes in society are often slow. Yet, man is the same. Man really doesn't change that much. You know, what's driving him. But the conditions of society change. And with that, the man himself and his relationship to society changes and his relationship to government changes because government, as the government becomes more and more an essential part of society, taking on the roles and functions of community, then that government and the environment that it creates will alter man. It doesn't really alter the, the basic nature of man, but it alters man because it alters his relationship with his, the people around him, with the community, with the government, etc. And somebody was talking to me yesterday about uh, government and how ridiculous things have gotten and everything, and I asked him to define what he thought was ridiculous. And, and evidently he was a Bernie supporter, and thought the world would be way better off if Bernie became the president of the United States instead of uh, Trump. Not, and and I find myself, you know, at a tremendous disadvantage because I don't want to be defending Trump because I don't really think changing the president will change the nature of man and his relationship to society and to government. That until before, you know, I'm fond of saying before governments will change, men must change. And unfortunately, when governments change, men are often changed by the circumstances that are created by that government. As Rome moved from being a republic to more and more of a socialist state and more and more an indirect democracy in order to run that socialist state, which is why People like Karl Marx was in favor of democracy because it leads to socialism and socialism leads to communism. And he understood that. And that's where he wanted to go. He, and he was actually, you know, his, his wife was, uh, you know, nobility and, uh, he was hobnobbing left and right with the rich and nobles. Although he himself was not that rich or anything, but uh, 
uh, his his plan for mankind was going to have repercussions in society because it changed the nature in which men relate to society. And democracy, like I say, leads to socialism if the people are not virtuous. And this is the problem, is how do the people remain virtuous? You can't create uh, a culture or customs in your society that will make people virtuous. They, if they do choose to become unvirtuous, they will alter those culture, that culture and those customs. Uh, that by their very nature, they will change the way they look at things and the way in which they relate to one another. But when you create these schemes, we'll use that word schemes because they use it in reference to what Herod was doing at uh, before Christ came, uh, what Augustus was doing. Um, as the first emperor of Rome, what Julius Caesar was leaning towards in his own rise to power was a socialist state, the rise of the welfare state, and where the government is offering you more and more benefits, and they are only able to provide those benefits because they have taken resources away from other people. In other words, made other people a resource for society, and then they redistribute that wealth to the people in the form of some sort of free bread or social welfare benefits. And uh, they gain greater and greater power in that process. And the people are made weaker and weaker. And uh, many of you have heard me quote Polybius. Uh, but many of you don't know that Polybius was a Corinthian. He was from Corinth, but uh, he was probably not related to hardly anybody who was in Corinth at the time that Paul was visiting Corinth and writing Corinth because things had changed. Things had been altered. So anyway, uh, we're going to, we're seeing our own society being altered on a regular basis. And uh, it's being altered because we're changing the scheme of things, the nature of society in a civil sense. And that civil society is, you know, or civil law is the law which people make for themselves. Natural law is built into the system. Divine law is that same natural law. Natural law, divine law, the will of God, all these things, you know, the will of the creator, the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of, you know, nature's God. That's all the same thing. Right reason. Another synonym for divine will. Because it's about what actually is it's not my opinion of god it's actually or a creator or this uh intelligent design that we see it that intelligent design is evidence of the existence of some intelligence that designed nature and the laws of nature are incorporated in that creation they they are part of it it's not like a legislature where the legislature in one country or one town 
will pass certain laws and those become laws for the people. That's civil law. The laws that people make for themselves. And they bind themselves to those laws by taking benefits, by applying for protection, uh, by lots of means, by registration, participation, uh, application. These all bring you into a civil society where you become subject to the laws that men make. But the law of nature, you're already subject to that when you're born. You know, it includes everything from gravity to, um, you know, uh, thermodynamics. All these laws will apply to you. And your opinion of those laws does not alter the effect of those laws. But anyway, so with that kind of as a basis, we'll go and take a look at Corinth. And uh, find out a little bit about it. Corinthos is supposedly the guy who founded Corinth. But the reality is there were lots of people in Corinth over many, many, many years. It was probably continuously occupied for about the last six or seven or eight thousand years. Depending on how you want to look at calendars, etc. But uh, there were civilizations that rose up were destroyed, rose up, destroyed, fell apart, decayed, what have you. They came and went. But there were almost always people living in this isthmus of Greece. There between between the Peloponnesia and the mainland Greece, there's this thin isthmus that goes across, and that's where Corinth is at. And you can actually come in uh, to a Corinthian bay there and then go out through another bay that takes you into the Aegean Sea so you can go from the Adriatic Sea to the Aegean Sea and there was only like four mile isthmus, wide isthmus between the two. So if you were wanted to take a ship to somewhere in the uh, Adrian Sea uh, or the Aegean Sea and you would go to that spot along the coast, get out of that ship, walk four miles, which you could do in about an hour, and get on another ship and continue your journey. Otherwise, you gotta sail all the way around or row all the way around this isthmus, which was a pretty good size thing and it could save you a huge amount of time if you were shipping things. So there was a lucrative trade with moving that stuff back and forth. They even tried to dig a canal way back, hundreds of years before Christ. They tried to dig a canal, uh, Evidently by hand, but for that four miles. And so that idea was around. They didn't actually get the canal built until the 1800s, late 1800s, I think 1893, they finished the canal. And you can now take a boat with no locks from one, one sea to the other through this four mile channel across the isthmus. And, uh, but that made it a strategic area for trade. Well, trade over long distance is only of value if you have successful communities or societies in two different places. Like in when Rome was rising up and then it, the Greeks and, you know, Athens is about 50 miles from Corinth. Uh, and there's, uh, and Sparta is not that far from Corinth. And they're kind of in between the two. And uh, there was battles between the two over the years. 
But Corinth as a city varied over history. You know, it was a large city and then it was small and seemed to be destroyed about 2000 BC, but then it came back again and, uh, it had, uh, royal families who kind of ran the show, elites, the wealthier, the, the more prosperous business people, and then they were overthrown by, uh, dictators, tyrants who ruled for decades sometimes before they themselves fell so complete into corruption, you know, killing each other even. Um, you know, there was one story of uh, a king who killed his wife and uh, the son figured out that he had done this and he went to another place to not be around him anymore because he was so upset with his father for killing his mother. And then eventually the father sent for him and said, if you will come to rule in my stead, he wanted to kind of retire, I will go to where you are in exile. And uh, the people in the place where the son lived killed the son to keep the father from coming. <laughs> so, because they didn't, they didn't trust him. He was a kind of bloodthirsty, ruthless individual, which comes when you give too much power to an individual. And of course we saw that with Saul. When the people in Israel, who were organized in a much different fashion, they weren't a democracy, they were kind of a republic. Uh, actually, many historians refer to them as one of the earliest forms of a republic was early Israel, because there was no king. And they were gathered together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, not only for their daily administration, but also for their court system. And they had a whole system of appeals courts, which we call the cities of refuge, and if you don't understand how all that worked, then you really don't, you, you will have a difficult time in understanding a lot of the things that are in the Bible. So now if we're going to look at Corinthians, we're going to have to look at who's Paul writing to. Uh, when they see the words of Paul, what are they thinking? Because that's who he's trying to communicate with. He's not writing you in Missouri. He's not writing you in... Uh, uh, Los Angeles, he's not writing you in Florida, he's writing the Corinthians. And he's talking to the Corinthians about some of the problems. He's not talking to the Corinthians about the things they're doing right, he's talking to them about the things that they might be doing wrong. And so, we, when you look at the letter, you can get a narrow view of what the church was doing. You have to look at other places and see the whole history of the time to find out what the church was doing in relationship and why Paul's writing about some of these things that he mentions in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But anyway, so Corinth was this thriving metropolis. You know, it probably at maximum it only had about 100,000 people in the city itself. But of course... In those days, with foot travel and donkey travel, the, most of the people were living out in the countryside. The fact that you had 100,000 people or 90,000 people living in a city is talking about a huge support economy that may involve tens of thousands of more people spread out throughout the community. And then, of course, if it's a seaport town, which it was, uh, 
you have an influx of foreigners constantly. Uh, Cicero said something along the the lines of he talked about how difficult it was to keep a moral society that uh, was on the uh, on the coast in a seaport town because you had all these influences constantly coming in from abroad and uh, to keep the people moral they knew there was an essential nature to morality you know you marry husband and wife families had to be stable for society to be strong uh, the children were raised up with values uh, the idea of a woman uh, having relationships outside of marriage uh, was so looked down upon that it was absolutely forbidden. But yet, what they ended up doing as they became more prosperous was they the state actually created brothels in the temples where the prostitutes in the temples, temple prostitutes, were actually paying a tax that helped build the temples. But this way they could regulate this immoral activity. And of course, the prostitutes weren't allowed to get married. And, you know, it caused greater degeneration of society. But they had to do something because of this immoral influence that they saw as immoral. See, when we often read about places like Corinth and Rome... What we're reading about is the problems. They have a war. They have, they break a treaty. They, they have, uh, problems with the breakdowns of society. And so that gets reported. And you think that's the way the society always was. When they often are rising to prominence, they have a different set of values. It's kind of like America. America, you know, or the black community in America, I gave the example because those statistics are readily available, that only 3% of the children raised in black families were raised in single-parent families at the turn of the century, back in the 1900s. But today, it's over 70% of the children are being raised in single-parent families. Well, that's that's part of those schemes of society, the culture of society that alters the nature of society because that's now not only acceptable, there's something driving that characteristic of society and culture so that so many children are being raised in single-parent families. And the same is it's being extended to the the white, the, the Hispanic, and even the Asian who had a very low uh, single-parent family situation a few years ago but now it's on the rise this is altering society and many of these things took place in Corinth and we're going to be taking a look at when that process took place when we return to Keys of the Kingdom so welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom so societies are constantly in the process of change either for the better or for the worse what I was trying to remember is the Cicero a quote which was in his treatise on De Re, uh, Republica, which he was writing about because of the fact that, see, most people today, even, you know, not even those graduating now, but those who graduated 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they don't know the difference between a republic and a democracy. 
they often mistake an indirect democracy for a republic, and that's not actually the way the word was properly used. A republic was when the people were free from things public, and that there was no king or ruler, neither an individual nor a majority that could rule over and take away the rights of the individual. Now they talk about constitutional republics, and you can have a constitution in a republic that limits the power of the government, but... Uh, most republics today are people calling themselves republics with a constitutional republic. They don't nearly limit the power of government like uh, is specified in Deuteronomy. You know, they have five things that you are to forbid any government that can, if you elect a government, that becomes an indirect democracy because you're electing somebody to govern. You want to limit the power of that individual or that group of individuals with a constitution. You write down, can't do this, can't do that, can't do this, you know. And that's what we see in the constitution, except for in the Bible, it gives you five things that you are to limit their power concerning. And only one of those five things is in the Constitution of the United States. Yet people think the Constitution of the United States is a biblical document. Somehow in conformity, you know, ordained by God. When God has already said, this is what you need to put in a Constitution, and they did not put it in the U.S. Constitution. Most of it they did not include. And for good reason, but... Just like most people, most of the kids who are advocating socialism, they can't define it. Most people who are advocating the Constitution don't even have a clue what it is that the Bible forbid or, or advised you to write down and read to your leaders every day. And many of your leaders haven't even read it once, much less read these five things, because they didn't read these five things in the Constitution because they're not in the Constitution. And if you don't know what they are, you can go download the book, Contracts, Covenants, and Constitutions for free, and it will tell you in there. And, uh, but anyway, Cicero, in his treatise for De Republica, explains that maritime cities also suggest a certain corruption and degeneration of morals, for they received a mixture of strange languages and customs and import foreign ways as well as foreign merchandise, so that none of their ancestral institutions can possibly remain unchanged. And of course, that's the process we see in Corinth when it becomes prosperous at a prosperous seaport. When, and then when that takes place, in comes this outside influence that begins to alter society. It cannot remain unchanged. So when they had the original Corinthian society and and then they became wealthier and wealthier because they were in this strategic location. You couldn't get out by land. You could not get out to the Peloponnesian Peninsula without passing through this four-mile-wide isthmus where Corinth was. And so you couldn't 
come in with goods or go out with goods without passing through there. If you are using it as a land bridge to cross that four-mile isthmus from one sea to the other, there you had this other crossroad passing to Corinth. So this often led to Corinth becoming a wealthy community in a wealthy area with lots of money and lots of, uh, you know, resources in order to build, you know, to even consider building, you know, a four-mile-long canal through solid rock going across the isthmus was an amazing idea. They did eventually do it, but they didn't do it till the 1800s. But uh, the wealth brought corruption. Because wealth is power. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So wealth amongst the people can create apathy and create greed. And, you know, because wealthy people often want more wealth. And and, uh, they can become selfish if they create government systems that are to take care of the poor instead of the people take care of the poor. This is one of the things that was the, the, The wonderful thing about Israel is they took care of the needy of their society through charity that was ministered to by the Levites and by their own connections in the communities. And this is what one of the essential ingredients to making Israel as strong as it was. It not only provided charity amongst themselves, but they also provided charity for their neighbors who were not a part of their society. And this made them a stronger people because it made them a more virtuous people. When governments or the people began to look to government to provide for the needy, and the government operates by force, forcing the contributions or taking away from another society, in order to provide those benefits, this is going to alter society. It's going to alter the nature of society and the nature of the men who live in that society. Well, in uh, at at least several different times in the history of Corinth, it was the largest and most important city in Greece. Uh, And like I said, it had a population of almost 100,000 people in the city itself back in 400 B.C. And then eventually they created the uh, Achaean League with other cities, states, in order to become strong enough to ward off any attacks that might come. And uh, attacks did come. Uh, some of the politics, if you get, get down to around 140 or 150 B.C., they were making agreements with cities like Rome, which was more than a city by then. It was becoming the Roman Empire. And trading with people in the Mediterranean and the Aegean Sea. And then all of a sudden they started negotiating with people that Rome was at odds with. And Rome didn't like that. And they threatened war. And they assured them, no, 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 we don't want war. It's bad for business. Uh, we're not going to do that. And they said, well, in good faith, we want some of your best people to come and live in Rome, kind of almost as a hostage. And one of those people in this settlement 
to to a, a avert war between Rome and Corinth was Polybius, and this was in 146. Well, actually, it was earlier than uh, back in 150, I think, is that he moved to Rome and became this servant of Rome, public servant, well paid, well thought of, historian of historians, and. Uh, he began to report on the times. Now, this is still a hundred years before the first emperor of Rome. So, you have to ask yourself, what is, uh, what is going on with this, uh, relationship with Rome and Corinth that Polybius you know, has to go as, along with a lot of other people, as a sort of hostage. Well, one of the things that he writes, and I quote all the time, is he writes, the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of a rule of force and violence. The people, having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others, and to depend for their livelihood on the property of others, institute the rule of violence, and now uniting their forces, massacre, banish, and plunder until they degenerate again into perfect savages and find once more a master and a monarch. So, Polybius is writing this 150 years before Christ, before the destruction of Corinth. And he's telling the people that by looking to the government for benefits, and that government is going to take away from other people, this is going to alter the people themselves. And of course, 100 years later, more than 100 years later, 150 years later, John the Baptist comes along and says, we're not going to do it by force. Followers of John the Baptist were not going to use it by, do it by force and violence. They were going to do it by charity. If they had extra, they're going to share with the needy of their society. And of course, that certainly is Christ's message to live by faith, hope, and charity, not faith, hope, and force. Not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. Don't make the state your father, because that's the fathers of the earth. Don't pray to them for your bread, your daily bread. But pray to our Father who art in heaven. And hope that the people round about you and the people that you commune with and the uh, form communities with are there for you. Because that's that's living by hope. If you're wanting to live by entitlements, you're abandoning hope. And depending on force to obtain your benefits. This is really 101 Christianity. Nobody should have difficulty understanding that. And as soon as you see that, you would know that if I'm doing this other thing that Romans were starting to do, Corinthians were starting to do, Athenians were starting to do, then I'm abandoning the ways of John the Baptist, Christ, and Paul. But they will not want to see it. They will, they will want to see their scheme and make excuses. But they really have no argument in their favor whatsoever. So, 
if we go back and we're looking at, um, you know, what was going on in Corinth at that particular time that Paul was writing him, it was a wholly different Corinth. Something had changed. This, the league's relationship with Rome eventually collapsed entirely, uh, leading to the Achaean War. And that war brought about the absolute total destruction of Corinth in 146 BC. And the order was to kill all the men, to kill them all. Now, I'm sure they didn't kill them all. They didn't kill Polybius because he wasn't living there anymore. But all the men, certainly the men who were of fighting age, heads of families, etc., were murdered by the thousands. And all the women were to be sold into slavery. And all the children were to be sold into slavery as well. To pay back the debt that was created when they had to go to war with them because they were out there trying to ally themselves with those whom Rome considered to be their enemies. Now, Rome was already in its own process of degeneration and savagery. And of course, this is what we see is savagery. And we see this now in our own society where people are looking more and more to government, more and more dependent upon giving power to government. They complain about government, but then they want to give it all this power to provide them with benefits at the expense of their neighbor. And even at the expense of their children because they're borrowing money to provide these benefits. There is no Social Security Trust Fund. There's never been a Social Security Trust Fund. That is that is just pie-in-the-sky imagination. There is no division of funds. As long as the United States is operating in the red, you know, spending more money than it has, there is no money in the Social Security Trust Fund. There is no trust fund. The only thing that's in the trust fund is you, because you're a collateral for the debt. And you and your children and your children's children are expected to pay back those debts. You know, people talk about forgiving student loans. They're they're not forgiving loans. They're just not making you pay for it. At least not, they're, you know, the the people who went to trade school and got a job that makes sixty, seventy thousand, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 a year. And they've developed a skill and gone through apprentice programs and journeyman programs. They're going to have to pay for the tuition of the kids who went and studied, you know, uh, diversity or whatever it is they got their diploma in. The ones who actually went out and got a job and actually are productive members of society, they're the ones that are going to have to pay back these student loans because they're, the loans aren't going away. They're just not going to hold you responsible for them. But people who are greedy, people who are savage, willing to take a bite out of their neighbor. They're not going to see that. They're just going to see, oh, we're going to pay all our student loans off. Let's vote for them. Because they're already savages. They're already willing to take it, to live at the expense of others. And they're accustomed to it. See, so what Polybius was warning has already come to be in the United States and Australia and England and Europe and all over. So we're already manufactured the problem with our own schemes and customs. 
our own rituals and customs. We're ritualistic, willing to take away from our neighbor to provide us with benefits. So, this was probably going on in Corinth, which is why they were having this rise and fall of uh, dictators and uh, and uh, rulers who exercised authority and who could make treaties and obligate the people of Corinth. But they were all wiped out in 146 B.C. It wasn't until 44 B.C. that a new city was built by Caesar, who decided, well, we're going to need some sort of city there, because it's such a strategic location. And so the people that began to fill, fill the roles of that civil society the citizens of that society were not Corinthians. They were Romans. They were Jews. They were Greeks. They were from Athens. They were they were from all over. And so they were bringing all these other cultures into this new city-state, this Corinth. And it wasn't the original inhabitants of Corinth because they were all spread out all over every place or dead or both <laughs> so so they were creating this completely new environment now one of the things that you would just surmise is the people that were going to inhabit Corinth you know they started building this in 44 BC and it took a while so you know by the time Paul is writing the people in Corinth these are the first generation of the settlers that built Corinth. They're not the 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 year old civilization of Corinthians. This is a new group that's brought in. And they're brought in in a time when this idea of the state being the benefactor and exercising authority and taxing the people and and getting revenue by taxing everything from prostitution to transportation. And this was funding the government, as well as spoils of war. See, Israel wasn't supposed to take spoils of war, because that's a dangerous thing. So, all this society was fairly new. It was diversified, because there were people from lots of different places. It was prosperous. So that by the time Christ came along and John the Baptist is preaching, they're, they're not only seeing the repercussions of coveting their neighbor's goods through the power of government, they're, they're seeing the degeneration. And so some people are repenting, thinking a different way and saying, no, let's not do it that way. Let's do it another way. And that, of course, is the story of Corinth. You know, because they had a good familiarity in their history with, with, uh, the idea of, uh, constitutions to limit the power of government, because they had seen the tyrants before. But these aren't the same descendants. They probably knew some history, but these are, these are different people from all over. They, they, they could have read Polybius. But he was writing for the Romans at that time, writing their history. And this was a kind of a footnote in their history, warning them of what would take place if they created a socialist state. 
that it would alter the people and it would alter the government and it would alter the relationship between the two. So anyway, the Roman legions came and killed all the men, sold all the women into slavery and uh, all the children into slavery and there was nobody hardly there were some people living there but was insignificant amount they were like squatters because all the buildings were you know pretty much put down or destroyed burned up and so now we have a new Corinth with new people they have a socialist society to some degree or another. They have a treasurer and they collect taxes. And those monies are providing the welfare of that society. And along comes Christianity. It says, we're going to do something completely different. So what are they going to do? And how are they going to be doing it? And what does this have to do with Paul's writings? And why is Paul ends up talking with the the treasurer, literally, of Corinth, explaining Christianity to him? Because he's relating it to what, you know, Corinth during the Peloponnesian Wars. Well, it didn't always act nobly, I won't say that. But, it, you know, like the Phrygians, they had the idea that we will protect our own people because we have this strong society, strong and virtuous society. So, why is he talking to these people? What is he trying to tell them? And what, what were the Corinthians getting right that Paul didn't even have to bring up? And so we're going to go through a lot of these things and there's a lot of people and we can make a lot of names. You mentioned a lot of names of people that uh, were at that time, but it's more important to find out the principles and the differences of that early church from what the church is doing today, because today we see socialism on the rise across the board, all over uh, the Americas and Australia and England, and some a lot more, you know, actually in places like Sweden, socialism is actually rolling back a bit. Because they were seeing that it was not sustainable. But there's still a lot of the socialist tendencies where you think government will take care of me if I have a need. If I have, you know, an illness or whatever. And that's not healthy for society. That's, that's dependent. Government is force. And if you're dependent upon that force to provide an entitlement, then you're, you're going to have a breakdown in society that is not going to bind because it won't, you know, it won't hold fast because it will break down. So, uh, if we look at, uh, and we just take a look at the first epistle uh, to the Corinthians and, and we look at some of the verses, some of the notable phrases I have here on a section, you can go to preparing you and see it. The epistles contain some of the best known phrases in the New Testament, including, depending on which translation, all things to all men in Corinthians 9.22. Without love, I am nothing. So that word love can also be charity, same word. Without charity, I am nothing. Through glass 
darkly. He talks about looking through glass darkly or dimly. And then 1 Corinthians 13, 12. And when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I felt as a child. I thought as a child. And of course, you know, somebody once, uh, not once, that I've heard many times where people say, if you're not a, a socialist when you're young, you have no heart. But if you're not a conservative when you're older, you have no head. So the reality is, though, is socialism is the religion you get when you have no religion. And this is what was going on in that 140 years before Christ. It's what's been going on in the 140 years before now in the United States. Almost all social welfare in the United States was taken care of through churches and philanthropic organizations that provided for the needy of society through charity. That That's just the way it was. That isn't the way it is anymore. Things have shifted away from dependent upon charity and now we're dependent upon men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority, which is in direct violation of what Christ said we were to do. And it certainly is in violation of what the first century church was doing. So there is a near consensus among historians and and Christian theologians that Paul is the undisputed author of Corinthians. At least there is a one Corinthians, not first and second Corinthians, but there is another Corinthians out there that that he's considered not the author because there's such a vast difference in the language. But the letter is quoted or mentioned by the earliest sources and is included in every ancient canon, including uh, the Marcion uh, canon. So we'll take a look at some of that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom and we'll start getting into the actual verses themselves. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we could talk about uh, Marcionism, uh, which is this, uh, uh, I guess, he, he, you know, some would call him a prophet, others will call him a heretic. Uh, he He did oppose some of the ideas in the early church, but then again, he was, though some of those same ideas were accepted by the early church. And this is one of the things that when you study the early church, people talk about the early church fathers. These are the, most of those people that are listed as the early church fathers are actually those who wrote things down and their writings have survived because they were not burned up when certain church groups who exercised authority one over the other came to power. And they, they, you know, we see with the Constantinian church right away exiling certain people who didn't agree with Constantine. Most of the early Christians, if you laid out what they actually believed, and it was not a homogeneous group, they believed a lot of different things, uh, would be considered heretics today. Just quoting Peter and Paul and John, you know, we, we can find conflict between what is commonly considered Christianity today. Modern Christianity does not look like or do what the early church was doing. And that's not difficult to prove. 
it's difficult to get people to accept it, but it's not difficult to prove. So, we're not really going to go into all the different groups that, and we've talked about them, touched on them, but only so that you can help understand what Christ was really teaching, what what Christ really wanted the early church to know, and what it actually discovered and and uh, was occupying its time with. Most people are unaware of what that is. So, the, uh, we're, we're, we'll look at some of these things as we go through the chapters, but I also want to mention that there are a number of uh, sections in the, even the first, second uh, Corinthians that some people believe are insertions that they were inserted by other people, that they were not a part of the original writings. And there's a huge volume of fragments, but it's always difficult when you're dealing with a fragment as to what's the original source, but it looks like the earlier sources that some of the things that we find in Corinthians is not in the earliest manuscripts or the partial manuscripts that we have. But uh, we'll touch upon those during the study, but we're not going to go into great depth. The, the best handle that as we come across them. Uh, one of the passages, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, dealing with praying and prophesying with head covering. Uh, some people think this is an insertion. It says the church fathers and early church fathers, Christian fathers, or fathers of the church, are ancient and generally influential Christian uh, theologians, some of whom were eminent teachers and uh, great bishops. Well, at what particular time? Because there was a whole lot of bishops that came in in 300 AD that would not have been considered bishops to begin with. Uh, so, uh, you have to take a look at who's saying what. The mere idea of calling these men the fathers of the church, uh, or Christian fathers, is odd because Christ said, call no man on earth fathers. So, what gives these men the authority uh, that people say, well, they were the bishop here or the bishop there, but were they the bishops that were going to the meetings of Constantine? Because there was, like I say, there was over 2,000 known bishops at the time uh, of the Council of Milan. And uh, the first council that uh, Constantine called. But only about 319 bishops showed up. I mean, they were ordered all to be there, but only about 319 showed up. And then of those ones that showed up, Many of them left before it was over. And the very next council, you only end up with 150 bishops. Well, bishops or overseers, episcopos, were in vast numbers amongst true Christians. But true Christians weren't going to these symposiums of 150 men. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. So, what was really going on? Uh, I mean, we can talk about origin and and uh, uh, lots of these different uh, authors of the time, but they're not really as uh, accurate 
in, in relationship to the absolute first century church according to what Jesus Christ told them they were to be doers of. Uh, so many of these men were actually heretics calling other men heretics. And that that shows uh, a, a, a serious discrepancy between what was rightfully the teachings of Christ and the early church and what was already coming in right away that were false teachers. And so when we're going over some of these things and we're looking at the text, a lot of people are going to think that what we're saying is false because it disagrees with what you already know. Well, you you just have to look at the facts. And that's what we're going to try to do is go over some of those facts as we uh, move along in this uh, study of First Corinthians and to, to open up your view of what Corinthians is actually talking about. So we have a number of the other sections. Uh, Paul addresses different conflicts, some of the other passages that are considered to be inserted, First Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35, which has been wholly, hotly debated. Uh, part of the reason for doubt is that in some manuscripts, the verses come uh, at the end of the chapter instead of at its present location. So, it that doesn't sound like a transcription. That just sounds like somebody entered it in and then somebody else came along and added it in in another transcript and they couldn't insert it, so they just put it at the end of these chapters. So there's lots of reasons to find them as suspect, uh, suspect uh, phrases, but what's important is that when some of these phrases are key phrases in creating doctrine, and they weren't originally written in there, it brings a lot of things into question. But basically, Paul preached Christ first, so what we want to be constantly looking at is what is Christ actually stating? What is he actually saying? And uh, so we're, we'll be reading some of these as we go along and trying to find out what is the truth about Corinthians and what Paul was trying to establish by writing these letters to this church in Corinth. And what was the problem? So, if we we look at some of these uh, verses, and we can just go right down chapter 1, verse 1, and see where they're taking us. Now, in this time, he's writing of a very group of people. They're not all Corinthians. They weren't originally Corinthians. They were from all over the place because they just created this city. You know, they started rebuilding it in 44 uh, B.C. And Christ comes along. It's it's still just getting off the ground. It took years to build. And more and more people are coming in. And uh, it was probably re- reaching its height of prosperity after the destruction. And now Paul is writing it because they're... They're bringing in the precepts of Christ in the, into the people themselves. So they can't be coveting one another's goods. They can't be looking to men who exercise authority one over the other for their daily ministration. 
They're supposed to be praying to God and hoping that people will be there for them in faith, hope, and charity. That's what they're supposed to be doing if they're really Christians. Most Christians today aren't doing that. They're looking to men who exercise authority to provide benefits for them. But that would be totally in contrast to what Christ actually taught. Which makes most churches today not real churches and many Christians today not real Christians. So, verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. And uh, Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Well, now, is that everybody called to be saints, or is that just the ministers? Because the word saints, you know, called to be holy, it has to do with being separate. And Christ wanted his disciples to be in the world, but not of the world. But he wasn't telling all the people they could not be of the world. All the people did not have to sell everything they had, and follow him. It was the ministers were to sell everything they had. And hold all things in common. Because Christ appointed to his little flock the kingdom. He didn't appoint it to everybody. But they could not exercise authority. So they Christ was literally appointing a government. To the people. To manage. It was simply not going to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority. So, when people say government, you immediately think of somebody who's exercising authority. That isn't the kind of government that the church is. It's a different kind. It's another form of government. So, it goes on to say, with all that in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I thank, and he uses a word, Eucharistio. That's the word there, Eucharist. I Eucharist my God always on your behalf. Uh, I, I thank God always on your behalf. To the grace of God, which is given you by Christ Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him, by him, not by Caesar, in all utterances and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, uh, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gift. What gift? What are we talking about here? A gift. Uh, is this a gift from God? Is this, well, all the gifts that were in the early church were from God. By way of God operating through the hearts of the people. Because see, if you depend on men who exercise authority to provide the welfare, the care for your widows and orphans and needy of society, that's going to change you. That's going to alter you. That that's going to because that's a covetous practice. You're desiring other people and willing to send men to force other people 
to provide for you. That's that's simply contrary to what Christ taught, what John the Baptist taught, what Paul was teaching. But it's common amongst the, the church today because the church today is a descendant of the church of Constantine. It's not a descendant of the church of Christ. It's not apostolic in the sense that it was... Yeah, I heard somebody the other day, just I think it was yesterday morning, saying the Catholic Church is the one true church. It was established by the apostles. Well, then why aren't the Catholic, why isn't the Catholic Church doing things the way the apostles said to do them? <laughs> why aren't they doing everything through faith, hope, and charity? Ninety percent of the welfare provided to Catholics and to truth is to Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians, all these Jehovah Witnesses, ninety percent, at least eighty percent, certainly more than half of all. The welfare provided to these people who call themselves Christians is provided by the government, which is men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. That is that is what you see going on in the modern church. And that is completely contrary to what Christ said. So, technically speaking, those people cannot be followers of Christ. They, they're just not doing what Christ said. And if you loved him, you would be keeping his commandments. And one of his commandments was to love one another. That's be charitable to one another. And not force the contributions of one another by taking a bite out of one another. It is, it's just that simple. And, but, they have become accustomed to doing it. And now if somebody comes along and says, no, that's contrary to the de- decrees of Christ. What are we talking about? That sounds like a really bad thing. But they just don't want to see it. So anyway, that word gift there we see, it actually shows up about 17 times in the Bible. And it has to do with a favor with which one receives without any merit of his own. You see, you you don't earn charity. But charity is given, is freely given. But it has to be given in a way that strengthens you. It cannot be given in a way that weakens you. And so that, that benefit, we see it, you know, uh, translated free gift at least twice. It's just the word, you know, favor or like I say, gift of, but that's, what we should be extending one to another, taking care of one another, providing a daily ministration and pure religion. Remember, socialism is the religion you get when you have no religion. And if your religion starts to become impure, it's not, in other words, it becomes spotted by the world, the systems of religion of the world, the systems of welfare of the world, then you're going to be making the word of God the non effect. And you're not going to get the grace of God because you're operating in these covetous practices that entangles you again in the yoke of bondage. So, we see this, uh, this, this gift coming to the people by way of the people, through the hearts of the people, as a part of faith in the way of Christ. 
And that's going to give us a different picture of society. It's going to give us a different society than those who operate by force. So it goes on in verse 8 to say, Who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no division among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So, are we of the same mind? Do we want to live by faith, hope, and charity? Or do we want to live by faith, hope, and charity on Sunday or Sabbath? And the rest of the week, we're going to live by force, fear, and violence perpetrated upon our neighbor by men who exercise authority that we elect as we elected Saul without restricting them as Deuteronomy 17 tells us to restrict them. You see... Unfortunately, my message is, is you think you're a Christian, but you're not doing what Christ said. You're doing what your local church said to do, but you're not doing what Christ said to do. The Corinthians were doing pretty much, there are some exceptions, what Christ said to do. And so Paul's letter is going to talk about some of those things, but he is making reference to the fact that you have to be living by this love and by this hope and not by the free bread of Rome. He goes on in verse 11, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions amongst you, so here's one of those problems. He he already knows that they're taking care of one another, but there are some contentious issues that have come up. And so he's saying, you know, that that's been brought to his attention. Now that I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So th- what they're doing is dividing up. That they're, they're talking about, you know, who started my church. And who started my group. And who started my group. And we're of, you know, this is what the, the Catholic was saying. We're the one true church because we're of the apostles. But James would tell you, by what you do, you shall know them. And if they're not doing what Christ said to do, if they're excusing you from doing what Christ said to do, then they aren't founded by the apostles. They want to think that, but just doesn't seem to pan out because you would have, if you, if you love me, you have to be doing the will of my Father. If you're not doing the will of the Father, then you don't really love them. You may love the idea of loving Christ, but you don't really love Christ if it's not compelling your actions to do the right thing. 
So, for it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren. And he, he, he talks about what Close said. And he talks about the fact that some say I'm a, Apollo and some I'm a Paul and some I am of, you know, the different individuals who are out there preaching the kingdom. But that's like saying I'm a Greek Christian or I'm a Italian Christian or I'm a Jewish Christian. No, there's only Christ, following Christ. Are you really doing what Christ said to do? Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am Paul and Apollos and Cephas and I of Christ. Is Christ divided, he says? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. But Crispus and Gaius, let any should say that I have baptized in mine own name. Because he wasn't trying to get people to follow him. He was trying to get people to follow Christ. And I baptized also the household of Stephanos. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of non-effect. Well, what else makes, you know, the word of God the non-effect? Well, it was the Corbin of the Pharisees made the word of God the non-effect. And how did it do that? Because it was a Corbin that was provided by men who exercised authority rather than by faith, hope, and charity. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved. And it is the power of God. We are saved by the power of God and grace. That is without question. And and a lot of people say, well, there's nothing you can do to be saved. Well, there's nothing you can do to earn salvation where God owes you. It is by grace that God comes into you. But God is not going to come into you when you are still doing contrary to the will of the Father. As thy thy kingdom comes, as thy will be done. You have to be doing the will of the Father. And doing the will of the Father is not difficult to people who have real faith in the real Christ. Not the artificial Christ created by these churches who are doing contrary to what Christ said. You know, there's lots of people out there saying, this is Christ, this is Christ, this is Christ, but it is not Christ. It is not what Christ is meant to be. And when us, uh, uh, meant us to be, we have to repent of that, turn around and go the other way. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? What word does he have there when he talks about the disputer of this world? And what are the Greek texts in in this particular verse, which we're in verse 20 right there? We'll talk about that when we come back. Well, welcome back. Now, in this verse 20 of 1 Corinthians, first chapter... We see the word world twice in the same verse. Where it says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? 
That word world is aeon, which is age. But in the very same verse, following it up, hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And you're thinking that they have the same word there. Because we see world in the first place and world in the second place. But in the Greek, the second world is constitutional order or system of government. That scheme. Well, that word world is constitutional order or system of government. It's the system. It's the scheme of things. Is either of a wise scheme or not of a wise scheme. Made foolish the wisdom of this world, this idea of socialism. It is foolish. But people aren't going to see it unless they want to see the truth. So the disputer of this world, and actually when I look at the original syntax of that, the disputer of this age, the the one who disputes, they're not disputing the age, they're disputing that they're, if you look at even the word disputer there, which is, only appears once in the Bible, but it means uh, uh, a sophist. It's specifically, uh, you know, a sophist, uh, one who brings in to questions and uh inquiries and disputes and and challenges. So who is the disputer of this age? You know, but, but look at it in the context of where is the wise? Where is the scribe? And what what is the scribe? Uh you know, we have this image in our mind when we read this of scribes and Pharisees, but what is this scribe? It's actually a town clerk. <laughs> if you look up the definition, uh, Grammatus, it is a clerk, a scribe, a public servant, a secretary, a recorder whose office and influence differed in different states. So he's up there asking, where is the wise? Where is the town clerk? Where is the disputer of this age, the sophist of this age, and that's why we talk about the meaning of words uh, more and more uh, in trying to figure out what the Bible is actually trying to communicate to us. Because a lot of people read the Bible and they think they know what it's talking about, but the reality is if they're not doing what Christ said to do, if they're not doing what the early church said to do, if they are doing what Christ said not to do, then they are neither wise nor properly interpreting the text, nor are they believers in Christ, because you know them by their works, by what they do, not what they say. They say, he, Christ, this is why Christ said, many are going to say, you know, that they believe in Christ and that they're followers of Christ and that they're doing great things in the name of Christ, but they're actually workers of iniquity. They're, they actually are lovers of the wages of unrighteousness. So in verse 21 we see, for after that, in the wisdom of God, the world, now which world is that? That is the organized system or constitutional order or government. But they're talking about the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
So well, that's a really complicated sentence to try to get a grasp of. So we'll read it a little bit quicker. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world system, by wisdom, knew not God. So that's Rome, did not know God. The Pharisees and their system of Corbin did not know God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jew require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So, is it wise to take a bite out of your neighbor? Is it wise to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare through men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority? Is it wise to pray to the fathers of the earth for your daily ministration? Or is it wise to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity? Which is the wisdom of God? The wisdom of Karl Marx is that you should all be a communist nation and the communists will redistribute the wealth and everybody will be happy. But you can't do that, according to Karl Marx, without somebody being forced. You have to do it by force, not by faith, not by love, not by charity. Not by hope, but by forced entitlements of government. It is completely contrary to Christ. You cannot be uh, an avowed communist and a follower of Christ. You can't be a socialist. You know, I mean, people talk about redistribution of wealth and the taking care of all the needy and everybody having enough to get by. Absolutely a great idea. Are you going to do it through charity or are you going to do it through force? Because if you're not doing it through charity, then you're not doing it according to the way of Christ. You're doing it according to the foolishness of the world. But if you've gone to public school, you probably don't know how foolish socialism is. But it is foolish. It was foolish when Augustine was implementing it. It was foolish when Polybius saw the people moving that way. It was its foolishness today. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren. How that not many wise men after the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this, of the world. Okay, there's another of the world. The foolish <laughs> of the world. So what's foolish is that? What, what world is that? That's this constitutional order or system of government. The arrangement of that world. Now, there's actually places, and we'll get to it eventually, where they talk about the world of Christ. because And they use that same word. Because that's the system of Christ. There is a system of Christ. 
And that's why he commanded that his disciples, his student ministers, make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Which is how we see the early church forming for hundreds of years. We're forming, and, and we see the words that they use are telling us that they are in these congregations of ten, united with congregations, you know, ten congregations of ten is a hundred families. Now we're talking a serious church, and and ten congregations of a hundred families is a thousand. So that we were to sit down in these tens, hundreds, and thousands in order to facilitate a daily ministration that is operating by faith, hope, and charity. And that was the way of Christ. And that was the system of Christ. The ministers did not exercise authority one over the other. They provided real religious service, real welfare for their society through faith, hope, and charity. That's what the church was doing. It does, isn't doing that anymore. has a little bit of token charity so that they got their toe in the water. But they're not immersed in that way of Christ. So again, if we continue to look at verse 28. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised hath God chosen ye. And things which are not to bring to naught things that are. And no flesh shall glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom. And the righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So... Go back to the beginning of this whole section where he's talking about some say I'm of Apollo and some say I'm of Paul and some say I'm of Cephas, which is probably Peter. Uh, no. No. It is Christ. It is what Christ did. We don't, we're, even when you receive the charity of the church, the, the called out, which is provided by the charitable hearts of the congregations of the people. They don't take the credit for it. They give credit to Christ in them. Give credit to God, the Father, who through Christ and the Holy Spirit is guiding them in their action. So that no flesh glory in his presence. We're we're not putting somebody up. We have no Pope. We have no but Father but our Father who art in heaven. That we don't put people up on pedestals. We have no pedestal in our church because our church is not a building. Our church is the called out who are here called out to meet the criteria of Christ and to provide the services of the church through faith, hope, and charity, when the people are willing to obey Christ and sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and seek the kingdom of heaven and the way of Christ, which is a way that operates by faith, hope, and charity. In verse 30 we see, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, 
who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, which is justification. We have to actually be doing the word, doing the will of the Father, and sanctification, which is separation, and redemption. But this all comes by way of Christ. This this sanctification and this redemption accordingly. So, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, the word redemption there in the Greek, uh, it's also translated deliverance. Uh, in it, it, it has the concept of a payment of a ransom. And some of that ransom was, had to do with the Israelites or the Judeans, the cities, the citizens of Judea at that time. Because at first when he was preaching, he was preaching to the Jews. He wasn't preaching to everybody. But then later he expanded that ministry. But he first wanted them to get it right with the Jews. One of the things that people talk about that uh, Paul went into synagogues. And we think, well, those are all Jewish synagogues. Well, the reality is they were Christian synagogues in many cases. Sometimes he went into Jewish synagogues. But in order to create a synagogue, you needed ten heads of families, ten men who were heads of families. And those ten families formed a synagogue. And we've talked about that before. We give you references of the modern historians who say that. So when he goes into a synagogue and he is accepted, that is a Christian synagogue. It may be Jews, but it could be Gentiles who have formed these groups of tens, hundreds, and thousands. But it's up to you to walk in that faith, to seek. That's why Christ has these words like seek. That That's a doing word. It's not sit. <laughs> it's seek the kingdom of God. It's not sit and pretend that you're the kingdom of God while you're going to the kingdoms of the world. It's actually seek and persevere and strive. And there, it's not that your striving will earn you that where God will owe you, but that is a part of the process to be that doer of the word. Verse 31, it says, That according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. It's God working through the hearts and minds of the people that make the difference. So, that's just the first chapter. Now we're going to go on and and take a look at, uh, you know, subsequent chapters. And, uh, uh, and one of the things that when you... Uh, actually, there are a few other things that I probably should make note of in uh, looking at 1 Corinthians... Uh, and uh seeing here look i have a sidebar there on the page uh where it talks about the baptism of the modern church leaves you on a social path where your welfare was to be the result of forced offerings of men who called themselves benefactors but the baptism of the early christian provided a daily ministration which was the result of free will offerings this was the the christian conflict that was going to be you know they we the temples of rome was what how they operated their 
welfare system. The temples of Corinth, at one time in their history, several hundred years before Christ, you know, before it was destroyed, they had temple prostitutes. And they had a lot of other things. The temples could actually own property. They could own businesses. They probably made a certain amount of money in uh, the trade and the surplus, and they taxed people. You know, they might have built the harbors. You know, we see this at Ephesus. They, the temple at Ephesus was heavily in the fishing industry. And, you know, the people who were fishing, they got money, but they had, Money, you know, if a boat went down, they had money to build another boat because a portion of the profits of the fishing industry at Ephesus went to support the temple. And the temples worked as banks. Because the temple at Ephesus was so prosperous and so centrally located, it was built by 127 different countries, all of whom were investing in that temple which allowed that money of the temple to be go out and invest in things like trade and shipping and, and fisheries. And then when they sold that, a portion of that money went and supported the temple. This was, it's like a bank. I mean, it was the banker's bank in, in, of its day. And the, you can, you know, somebody says, well, what makes you think the Temple of Ephesus was a bank? And I says, we, he actually looked on Wikipedia. <laughs> It talked about it being a bank. That's that's what it was. And stockholders were, you know, they could sit over 20,000 people in the temple because that's where they had the stockholder meetings. And they had a vault, most secure vault in all the Mediterranean. But Christians weren't a part of those systems. But it didn't mean they didn't have a system. They had a system not dependent upon taxation but upon charity. Now, it's it, it, there's more to it than all that, but that's if you don't have the basics, you don't even know what they're talking about. Baptism meant, you, if you were going to get the baptism of John, you were going to have to take care of the needy through charity. There was already free bread. There was already Herod's system of you know forced offerings. He had set this up. You sign up. You had to pay in a portion of your sacrifice. That's your Corbin. Had to be paid in to provide for the needy of society. But John the Baptist is saying, no, we're not going to do it by force. We're going to do it by charity. We're going to have a welfare system based on charity. Where everybody else is saying, no, we don't need religion. That's why I heard a story Spain, what is it, 20% of the Spanish go to church now. Used to be like 80% of the Spanish went to church. Well, the church used to be all the social welfare of the people. The more they got away from that, why go to church? Now, the, the young don't see any interest in it. They have their religion, socialism. You see the same thing in Sweden. They used to be very religious. Now, the, almost nobody goes to church. But then the church... You know, I, I remember a story of uh, Thomas Aquinas who came in and the, I guess it was the Pope. There was counting coin according to the way the story goes. He had these gold and silver coins on this table and he was counting them all out and keeping track of all this money. And, and uh, the Pope says, no longer can we say silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas 
responded back, and no longer can we say arise and walk. You know, because they've made money more important than the actual service. I tell you that if you, if you lay down your life in service, in righteous service to one another in a way to strengthen the poor, and needy, those who also want to seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's when the miracles will start to come. So the baptism of the early church was moving you over into a civil system of welfare. We didn't call it civil, but it was a religious system of welfare that operated by charity. And that's, that's, your scribes become your clerks to keep track of what comes in and how it goes out again and it's really easy to do when you're sitting down in the tens hundreds and thousands because you have a network of people that actually know who is truly in need if you have a 500 man church people just line up and say well we have a need we have a need we have a need and you might as well go down to the welfare office but, you know, most of the churches, they, most of the money that they have coming in, it goes out in buildings and eating bills and everything. Because they think the church is a building. You know, you have to start substituting. Whenever you read the word church, stop thinking of a building. Stop thinking of an institution. The church is the called out. That's what the word is. The called out. Called out for what purpose? For the purposes of Christ. And that's, that's what the, the church is, is this institution of Christ. It's supposed to be. The true church is an institution of Christ that is providing for the welfare of people through faith, open charity, and a daily ministration of love. That's what the church is supposed to be doing. You know, if, if we look at, uh, some of the other things, uh, on the on the page where in the sidebar it says because these uh, networks which they were creating that's tens hundreds and thousands were often able to sustain themselves in difficult times they could be tempted by their self-sufficiency to become too independent and allow divisions to form you know we're Apollo we're we're uh, baptized as Stephanus and they had the same thing with Israel when they had the 12 tribes where Reuben seemed to be building their own temple because they were a little bit farther away than everybody else. And they said, well, what's this? You're dividing from us? Because they were tens, hundreds, and thousands. And they said, no, no, our temple faces yours. In other words, our temple is going to supply. And see, all the money, it doesn't have to go up to a central, you know, Vatican or or Washington, D.C., and then trickle back down to you. Most of the welfare is taken care of in your local congregation, but when the problem's too big for a local congregation, they're connected with ten other, or nine other congregations. And when it's too much for them, then they're connected with a hundred other congregations through that tens, hundreds, and thousands. And so that way that they're able to provide for the needy of society. You know, I actually made mention, I see here that I, I made mention of that in the sidebar of, you know, Reuben beyond the Jordan on the east because 
they built what seemed to be an independent altar of daily ministration. But it wasn't. They, they did not intend it to be that way. They just, and this is what Paul is talking about. The, the creating this denominational division amongst the people where, you know, we're Catholics, we're Lutherans, we're Presbyterians, we're Apollo, we're of, and that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. And it isn't the way it works if we're going to seek the righteousness of God. We have to love not only those who love us, but those we don't even know. And that is facilitated through that network that was the early church. And so join us on the network uh, and sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.